Welcome to Tabletop Journal's Seat Yourself podcast series on the hospitality tabletop industry. Now, here's your host, Dave Turner. Hi, everyone. I'm Dave Turner. I'm your host here at Seat Yourself, and I want to welcome you all to this episode of our nearly two-year-old podcast. We're here in Studio B this week of the Tabletop Journal Studios right here in Baltimore on America's East Coast. This is episode number 94 of Seat Yourself, and it's published on the week of October 12th, 2020. This episode of Seat Yourself, it should run approximately 40 minutes or so. And today, we're following up on a segment we did several weeks ago where we discussed glassware used in bars and restaurants and the psychology that that glassware brings to the overall guest experience. And once again, we'll be joined by our friend, Xander Lorenzen Hansen. Xander, of course, is the well-known cocktail and spirits guru based in Copenhagen and a frequent guest here on Seat Yourself. And of course, as regular listeners know, Xander is the head of his own bar products distribution company called Scandic Bar. And Xander also has another venture where he consults with people on all sides of the cocktail conversation under a heading of Mixology International. And finally, you probably know by now that Xander is the president of the Danish Bartenders Association along with being on the advisory council of the International Bartenders Association. So he's a busy guy. And so with all of that, let's get him in here for our episode of The Psychology of the Glass 2.0. Please welcome back to Seat Yourself, Zando or Lorenzen Hansen. And we're back this week again with Xander Lorenzen Hansen. Xander, welcome back to Seat Yourself. Thank you for having me. Xander, last time we were together, we discussed this overall concept, this overarching concept of the psychology of glass. Today, I want to dive a little deeper into what you mean by the psychology of the glass and, and then really get into various sectors. When we left it off last time, we talked about different pieces and how they talk about the, and how they help with the merchandising, the presentation of the cocktails. Can you take a second or two here and just recap some of the things that you talked about last time? Yes. So basically, psychologies of glass is more or less uh, philosophy. When you want to serve a beverage, a cocktail, a beer, or even wine, where it's not just you're serving your customer a cocktail, but it's the very experience of it. As a, a humans, we, we interact with our environment. We touch the glass. We smell what's in there. Some senses we can only pick up with our noses and how the glass is used, how the garnish will impact our experience, how, how we see things and the environment where it's being served in. So there are so many areas where there is psychology in the actual serving and preparing the, the, the cocktails. There's not one right answer. It, very, it depends on many different factors. But what's interesting is that how we can influence our customers to enjoy the cocktail more, we can add, add value, even higher the price, if the conditions in which it's served fits the, the whole brand value, the whole emotional attachment the customers have to what they expect. Yeah, there really is a, a, a true sensory experience going on with when you're buying cocktails. And and when you talk about the philosophy of it, I immediately go to things like, I'm going to first of all see it, but also I'm going to touch the glass. I'm going to smell the cocktail perhaps. And of course, eventually I'm going to taste it. But there's all kinds of sensory things going on in that experience. And I was wondering, 
in leading up to this uh, psychology of the glass 2.0 kind of session is are there styles or shapes that lend themselves to this a little better that, or maybe a better way to say that question would be different styles, different shapes. Do they have a different type of influence? If I put a cocktail in one shape of a glass versus another, is there a different experience for me? Actually, yeah, it's, you can work on different levels when it comes to this, but we already have to some extent a pre-knowledge of what we're getting. Some cocktails are, by definition, in specific glass. If we look at a martini glass, you already have an expectation of what you will get. And also with the price tag. So some glasses, if you have a long drink, long drink can be both in the high end, but also in more mainstream volume-based drinks, where if you take a more classical glass, thin glass, martini glasses, there are always some expectation to it. If you take a very thin, crystal clear glass, there's some value to the glass. We as a consumer, we like this must be a really good glass. It's classic, it's thin, it must be high quality. So you already put a price tag on it. If the cocktail represents what's in the glass, you 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 can charge more for it because you already have a, a certain amount of price value uh, you as a consumer added to it. So there are some, and with a rocks glass, it's like often with whiskey associated, you have bourbon. So there are already some stigma added to, to specific glasses. Yeah, and then and, and in addition to the shape, you just mentioned the rocks glass. When I pick up a rocks glass, I all of a sudden have a very tactile experience with it, the feel of it in my hand, the weight of it. And we talked last time about the sham, the base of the glass too, and how how that can have sort of an influence on the overall feel that, that again, that tactile, that sensory portion of, of the beverage. And it's interesting, you mentioned about bourbons and whiskeys and so forth. What about cocktails? I, I say cocktails, what about spirits? that are drunk neat. What is the psychology of that glassware where you're drinking a, whether it be a scotch whiskey, maybe a tequila, or or even American bourbon? Well, there are already, to some extent, you, you see, if you look at American spirits, it's often associated to, to low-ball glasses. We have pictures from Prohibition style, we have the Madman style, and it also very much depends on where you are in the world. As a European, I have already some pictures of American spirits. But you see, especially with lowball glasses, when it comes to bourbon, like you want the neat, you want the scotch, you want like the whole scenario where I would, as a European, look to lowball glasses for American spirit. But it very much depends. If you go to Asia, where you have Baiju, they have different kinds of glasses associated with it. And you see the same with cognac, that they have specific kind of tasting glasses, similar to what you see actually in wine, because you want the whole aroma of the actual spirit before you taste it. Yeah, one of my favorite glasses, uh, talk about drinking spirits neat. One of my favorite glasses maybe in the whole world is uh, the Glencairn glass. And the reason I like that glass is because, number one, it's so identified with Scotch whiskey, obviously, but also American bourbons too. And it's identified in a way that is upscale but still approachable. And I think that when I see the Glencairn glass in use, in a bar or a uh, in any kind of a beverage setting, I automatically know that that person understands that whiskey, that spirit at a different level than somebody just dumps it into a uh, a double old fashioned that is sort of uh, what they had on the shelf. They're treating their the spirit with respect, and they treat me as a consumer of that spirit 
with a certain level of respect for too. And for that reason, and, and, and it's identifiable. And I always love products that are, that when I look across the room, I can see it and identify it and I know exactly what it is. That's a strong brand uh, impression. And I think the Glencairn glass does that as well as anything else. And just in a generic shape, the martini glass does also the same thing. You can't set a really great martini glass down on a bar with a martini in it and not have somebody who's picking it up feel just a little bit sexier for having that drink. No, it's, it's, it's very true. And especially with the whiskey glass, so what's interesting what they did is it's um, ingenious marketing. It was just brilliant, to be honest. But what also what, what I really enjoy with the whiskey glass is they actually recognize some of the sensory perception that you have when, when tasting whiskeys. And for me, it's a perfect mix of a lowball and actually a, a copper glass or a cognac glass, where you you have the shape of the glass, which impacts how you smell, how the the notes come into your nose. So what's really brilliant with with, with this glass is that it, it's, it it touches on how we interact with with the liquid, not by tasting, but through some of our sensory notes. And you'll see the liquid, the coloring much better in, in a round shape than in a flat shape. So it's not just the, the, the notes, it's not just the, the feel, it's a heavy glass, but also how we, we see it with our eyes because of the way the glass is. The light hits the liquid differently, so we we see it better. So it hits many of the different sensory perception without your, or not, like you don't think about it when, when you taste the first time, but it, as a tasting person, you'll be interacting with the liquid on many different levels with, without you knowing it. Yeah, that's such a great point, too, because when I think about how the liquid sits in the glass itself, I typically think of a wine glass, and I want to get to wine in a minute, but typically think of a wine glass, and I love the way a red wine sits in the glass or doesn't. And you see some very flat, wide glasses that have been introduced lately, and and they're, they're more designed for the visual of the glass, I think. And I understand the aeration of a red wine, but I also want the wine to sit in the glass well, and so I can see the color, the redness of it, and the, how deep it is. And frankly, it helps control the portion from an operator standpoint as well. And so some narrowing, but yet just the right amount of width to get some air in there. And I think the Glencairn glass, is just as you described it, does a great job of that on whiskey, whether your whiskey is American or it's scotch, uh, either way. So yes, uh, uh, are there any other glasses that you can think of or, or any other spirits that, that really... Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of tiki, so it will be difficult not to go into that area. You are a big tiki guy. We've never had, I, I, I was going to say, I, I'm not sure we've ever had a, uh, an episode with you on Seat Yourself where we didn't talk tiki a little bit. I love tiki. It's, there are so many things, not just a cocktail, but it's just the whole interaction. I want people to know who are listening right now. My good friend Xander, he can't even say the word tiki without smiling. And I think that says something about the tiki lifestyle. Well, tiki is amazing. Like, <laughs> before going into tiki, so what's like just going back to your lobo and, and and martini. So martini is, is an interesting concept because there are so many things associated with martini. Everything from movies, Bond to specific cocktails. And if you make a cocktail by calling a martini, people already know what they will expect. And for as a sales point of view, martini cocktails are traditionally a bit more expensive than highball glass. So just by adding the martini glass, you can put more value to, to the cocktail, even if it's, it's, it's a traditional martini or a more uh, a modern espresso martini. So martini already have 
people know what you expect. They already have a price tag on it that has some values. Lowball is one of my favorite glasses because they're a bit often a bit more heavier. How you hold the glass is different to you touch the bottom more if you have a low ball compared to a still based glass. So you, you feel it much more. Uh, if you have a martini glass, you don't have the same sensory touch as you have with a low ball. So low ball is, is quite interesting to play with since you are touching it, so to speak, much more. Tiki is, is at me, an amazing glass to work because there are so much, I wouldn't say emotions, but there are so much, many things to see in the glass that the traditional Tiki glass consumes you much more because you're turning it around, you're focused on the actual glass, and then the cocktails comes later. So what's interesting when, when you look at the, like the whole psychology and philosophy behind this, that Tiki really embeds it, and you're so focused on the Tiki and the garnish that the actual cocktail comes seconds, which is very interesting. Stay right on Tiki for a second. I love Tiki as well. But to me, when I see Tiki, I think of the work that a bartender has to go through to create the beverage that's inside, the cocktail itself. And that to me is a labor-intensive cocktail, whatever is in there. And uh, whether it's a rum punch kind of a drink, uh, it just takes longer with a garnish and everything else. So is that a reason uh, also? Uh, or is that just, I mean, does it really take that much longer? Or am I just imagining that? Yes, it's, it's, uh, I think it's, it's pretty much the, the standard of it. Um, so, so Tiki is, is, is quite interesting because it hasn't been devalued yet. As soon as something hits mainstream, it, there always is a natural devaluation of, of the price that, that is when everybody has it. We haven't hit that with Tiki. We have gotten glassware Tiki before, it's, before it was only ceramic, but now the larger producers have recognized the trend. And some were even like really, to, to a large extent, pushed the, the, the trend of Tiki further by creating glasses. So, so the whole concept is still developing and it's still having a good, good price tag. But there is a lot more, it looks more craftsmanship than a traditional highball. You have the emotion when you see a, a tea cocktail, this bartender must have used at least five minutes to do this because this looks amazing with the garnish and everything. So there is, on the surface, more craftsmanship to it when the end consumer have it. It can be that the bartender has mass produced it. We, we don't know that. But when, when the customer gets their cocktail in tea glass, there is a bit of a uh, higher value to it because it's, it looks more difficult to make. I want to swing back around to some of the beverages, uh, the neat beverages, spirits. Uh, that are t- There's a trend now to uh, finishing. I just see that more and more of taking a Scotch whiskey and finishing it in Caribbean rum cask, for instance, in that adding uh, a flavor profile of sherry to American bourbons, things like that. And I wonder if there isn't an opportunity for glassware producers to create a unique glass that helps bring out some of those more subtle nuances of a spirit's flavor profile when poured neat. And I, I just wonder about that a little bit. I, and I'm, I'm always looking for opportunities for glassware manufacturers to expand maybe with a, with a special tasting glass kind of thing. Do you think that that's likely or, or you know, is the Glencairn glass the perfect glass? The short answer would be yes, but it's difficult to answer also. Um, there, there is an opportunity. We always see it with whiskey. We see it with grappa. We have seen it for, for cognac and brandy for, for many, many years. So it has always been there. And there are still some areas where, with new spirits, how should they be tasted? 
where I could see a spin-off is for specific cocktails to increase the taste. It is difficult with spirit, let's say rum. Rum has many different tastes. Sugar alone impacts the taste quite a lot. So one rum has more sugar, has more vanilla. Rum rum has less sugar, so there's more coffee notes and there's more bitterness. So you cannot have one glass for both. It would be difficult. There are some notes you, you taste with your nose, some with, with, with your tongue. So it, it's difficult to find one glass. I think what we more see is more subcategories within the spirit industries and the glass industry. But basically, spirit producers would need to talk to glass producers to find out what would fit best. But there's not one right answer here. It, it very much depends on the taste. And if you look at an American bourbon, you take some cherry oak, you have a very sweet scent, you have a taste. Well, that's one glass, but then you take something more heavy in it, more on a moonshine-based or a white dog. It's a very different type of glass. So yes, but it will be many different varieties. Well, you know, I love this. I, I have a quick question for you. You brought up, uh, you mentioned the word cognac, uh, cognac before, and I haven't seen a brandy snifter used in a while. But I find that fascinating. And, and, and this whole discussion, and, and we're going to take a break right now, but I want to conclude by saying, you know, I, what I really love about the glassware and this conversation about the psychology of the glass, how the glassware itself transports you to another place. Now, Tiki, it may be one of the more dramatic examples of it, but martini glass does, the Glencairn glass does, there's certain shapes, whether it's the madman type retro look on, on a cocktail glass, but glassware, the glassware itself actually transports you to a different place even before you've tried the cocktail itself. So I, I think glassware has an enormous role to play in the presentation of beverages, adult beverages, and cocktails of all types. And when we come back from the break, I want to ask you the tougher questions is, can a wine glass or a beer glass do much the same thing? And hang on to the final, well, for me, what's interesting, um, which I, I will follow very curiously, how spirit brands on, on the mainstream are actually rebranding some of the glasses. We already see companies like Diageo starting to use Tiki. So I think there is a pushing trend from the actual mainstream spirit producers, if it's by Jew, it's in rum and vodka, who are actually pushing the glasses to new limits, where, for example, Diageo are doing Tiki, which will push the entire industry and getting the, the end consumer to, to know the glass even better which would then reflect in, into our industry. So I think a lot of interesting will happen where we see right now the spirit brands are taking over some of the, um, the branding. Yeah, again, I, I think I love glassware. I think it's something that's subliminal oftentimes, and it shouldn't be. It should be right out there, and it should, when I sit down, order a cocktail, whatever they bring that, whatever vessel they bring that in, I, I, I want to be transported someplace. I want to be taken away from whatever it is, and and whether it's, uh, I want to be in a James Bond movie with uh, my martini glass, or maybe I want to be transported with a Glencairn glass, which is probably one of the most famous glass shapes in the world. So anyway, we're here with Zandal Lorenz. And Hansen, we're talking the psychology of the glass 2.0, and we'll be right back. This episode of Seat Yourself is sponsored in part by the Edward Don and Company. Everything but the food for nearly a hundred years. And if you have not yet signed up for Tabletop Journal's bi-monthly newsletter, now would be a great time to do so. Go to tabletopjournalnewsletter.com. It's a quick and easy sign-up. And a great way to stay on top of all the important going-ons in the world of hospitality tabletop. That's 
tabletopjournalnewsletter.com. Now, back to our podcast. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Zandla Renson Hansen. He's a favorite here on Seat Yourself. And we're talking the psychology of the glass 2.0. And Xander, before we took the break, we were talking about cocktails and spirits that are drunk neat, whatever. And we dabbled a little bit on wine and beer, but I now I want to go a little bit deeper into that. Tell me about the psychology of the glass when it comes to wines. Well, it's basically the same as what we were talked. Um, and just for, for the sommeliers and the wine expert in your audience, I'm mainly focused on the, the psychology and the marketing behind, not the actual taste. So just before I get any angry letters. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people out there that are very hostile about this. All this, uh, when you start trading on the wine area, everybody's very territorial about that. They they think their, you know, their glass or their wine has tasted, you know, I mean, I, we've, we've had that uh, reverb a little bit here too. I'm amazing how emotional people get about it. Yeah, I understand. It's, it's, it's a way of living and it's yeah, philosophy for many. So just to make everybody know, like, a lot of passion in the wine sector. Yes, that is one way to say it as well. So basically, I'm, I'm only focused on like the, the the psychology, the philosophy of the surrounding marketing, brand value, and consumer experience. Not about the actual quality of the wine, nor its taste. Just to avoid any angry letters. But if you look at the psychology of the glass, beer and wine has done from for many years, much before even cocktails. Slightly different approach, but it's, it's the same concept. You use the surrounding the glasses to impact the consumer's experience of, of the wine. And if you look at, at wine, they actually did quite an amazing job where they recognized that some wines have different flavors and it hits the notes differently. Some through, through your nose, some through your mouth. Um, so on, on that end, they build glasses supporting those flavors. But at the same time, they use how the customers interact with the product with the right glasses. And we see that especially in cafes and restaurants, where if you have a quality high-end wine, you already know it has to be an expensive glass. We know that from very early on, but we don't really think about it. But it is a psychology and marketing tool where if you have an expensive wine, you have to fit with expensive glass. And the whole serving also shows the customers, is this a mainstream wine or more expensive. So wine producers have known this for many, many years. And especially in, uh, in the last few years, you've seen more and more use of, of the glass, that you have the wine, but you to truly appreciate it, you need to know how to interact with, with the glass. Uh, when it comes to in, in touch with your wine. Yeah, without trading on the turf of any sommeliers out there who might be listening, I want to say that there's a lot more to uh, choosing your wine glass than just simply how durable it is and the price of it, all that. I would just say it needs to, like anything else in the on-premise, uh, the restaurant dining experience, once you establish an expectation, a guest expectation, you need to carry that expectation through all the way through the meal whether it's uh, the beverage experience portion of the meal or the dinnerware or whatever, or maybe even the cutlery. The cutlery to me, uh, and we could probably do a whole show on cutlery someday, but same kind of thing. It's the subliminal effect of it. And if you're pouring great wines, you want to have a great wine glass. If you're pouring very rustic wines, I, I could see a more rustic feeling glass to it too. Well, you can actually make this quite simple. Let's take a cheap 
volume wine from your local Walmart or Casco, and then you take an expensive wine, high quality California and everything, and then you take two glasses. You take an IKEA, small wine glass, and you take a really expensive one. The one that is poured into the expensive glass will, by definition, be that they will like it more customers. If you pour in the good wine, they will like it even more. But if you take the cheap one and put it in the more expensive glass, they will, and you serve it in that glass, there will be already some expectation since we are influenced even before we taste the, um, the wine. Yes, the, the more expensive is probably better, but before even tasting the, um, the cheaper wine, you get the sensation this subconsciously experiencing when we're getting served in the expensive glass, well, this must be a good product. So we already price value it alone on the glass. So, so the glass has an, a tremendous impact on the consumer, which is basically the whole psychology and philosophy of the glass, where the way it's served and in what it is served will influence the customer's end result of the wine. Yeah, I, I think everything from the stem to the the sheer rim of the glass and and everything, all those things um, where where the touch points are on a glass uh, on a wine glass are really really important and they do impact the guest overall guest wine experience. Let's talk beer for a second. A lot of different types of beer, a lot of different types of beer glasses. Tell me about the psychology of the beer glass. Well, it's basically the same as as the rest. It's the same mechanism that is is going on. Beer producers have known this for, for ages. We have specific glass for specific beer. Depends on the foam and the coloring of the beer. You often see a, a more thick and low beer, uh, a low glass for, for dark beers, while the lighter ones we have, have larger, depending on how the light hits the glass and how we experience it. The foam has often a lot of taste. So for foam, you often want a, a more wider glass so you can experience all the flavors which is in the foam. So you already see the, the sensory perception that beer producers are already using, where I don't really think there has been any cognitive thought about it. There is a psychology here. There are some techniques we will use it. So it's more been based on a gut feeling, and it has been correct. But it's, it's based on the same tools as for a cocktail or, or a wine, that the whole experience of how we taste it is in many ways defined by the glass, how it's prepared, and how it's served. Sandra, last time that we were together and we talked uh, about the psychology of the glass uh, 1.0, let's call it, you had a statement and you said, yes, guests still want a cocktail, but they want so much more. What did you mean by that? Well, you, you see, a cocktail is a lot of things and you have beer and wine, but we see a, a new category which has, has been growing over the last 10 years, but the last two years-ish, it has really been growing and it's more in the low alcohol, low proof segment where we see a very big boom within the subcategory of cocktails and spirit where it's just with non-alcoholic or very low alcohol percentage. So the whole concept of mocktails and low proof and all that in, in, in that subcategory of mythology is booming right now everywhere in the world. Is there a different type of uh, psychology of the glass for a low alcohol cocktail or is it similar to? Same principles. Still, like you, when you use your low alcohol spirit, you're still within mixology, so you still prepare and everything. And it's again, it's more of how we present the, co- the cocktail or mocktail or wine. So it's the same principle, it doesn't really change what you pour in of liquid or more what kind of glass, how it's served, and how it's prepared. So, so same techniques. 
Is it possible that because of low or no alcohol in the cocktail itself, that the glass becomes even more important in the presentation of it? The garnish, and I mean, I'm not talking about just the glass, but the, the way you present it. Right, exactly. It's a very interesting point. I would say in this time, in this transition time, where we're going over to more and more low proof to keep the value, it was actually a very good point there. Ten years ago, a non-alcoholic was, was not uh, the high-end product. It was more a rum and coke without rum. Nowadays, it's, it's becoming a segment of its own. It's, it's a category of its own. Mm-hmm. And for a restaurant who still wants to make a good margin on it, the glass has a big effect on how it's served. So if you make a, a low-proof cocktail in a martini glass, there is already some value to its craftsmanship since a low-proof tiki, low-proof martini already have some value base by the end consumer. So same techniques that you use to amplify the quality and craftsmanship of the cocktail or mocktail is amplified by the glass you use. Quick question and running through my head while you were explaining all that, which I totally agree with, is that in a low or no alcohol cocktail, what typically would be a percentage of alcohol that's in that, in the alcohol version of it? In a regular cocktail, is 20% of the, the cost, let's call it, of that cocktail in the alcohol itself? Or is it 10%? Is it 40%? Yes. So it's very difficult to go one-to-one on this. You know where I'm going. You can see where I'm going. Is that You've got a higher margin beverage going across the counter to the guest. And therefore, it's in the operator's best interest to promote, if this is really the case, to promote uh, the low and no alcohol beverage. I can see where you're going with it. And to some extent, yes, but I would change the table on it. Creating a a mocktail should not be a supplement to a cocktail. It shouldn't be just because you remove the the spirit. Uh, Mocktail is is non-alcoholic. It's not just by removing the spirit, but creating something out of the ingredients you have and giving the customers, because some customers want a mocktail, not because they want something without alcohol, just because they don't they, they don't really want alcohol right now. So it's you cannot take the alcohol and just remove it, that's devaluating the, the mocktail itself, even though it's how it began way back, but at the moment it's, it's, it's an entirely new recipe. It's similar to what well, is mocktail and then you have wine, two different things. And same as with mocktail, is you create something new. When it comes to margin, there is generally a much higher margin since you don't have spirit in it, but it also depends on what you use in it. But in generally, you have a much, much, much higher revenue on a mocktail or low proof. And what's for me even more interesting is that there is a growing trend, very fast growing trend, where you see younger generation, 20 to 35-year-olds, who don't want to consume heavy alcohol. They want a non-alcoholic or low proof. So on one hand, you have a higher margin, but for me, what's more interesting is that you're actually targeting a new segment which you maybe didn't have before, because the consumer are asking for something new. They want a new segment. If you don't have that, they will find it somewhere else. So I would more argue that adding low proof cocktails and mocktails to your menu and doing it properly, you not only are gaining more revenue, but you're actually getting new customers. Okay. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole of, uh, we'll bring you back for another segment and talk about low and no alcohol uh, cocktails. But let's suffice it to say that it is possible that when you get to low and no alcohol uh, cocktails, mocktails, whatever the word we're going to use for that is, that the glassware, the psychology of the glassware may even 
take a higher level of importance. Especially these years, it's still a new segment and you want the right price tag with glass has a very important role. People already know an old fashioned, they already know a daiquiri, Hemingway daiquiri, they already have a, a price feeling of it. So especially now, if you're going into the whole low proof segment, the glass has an even higher importance than traditional cocktails because it's still such new and you want the right price tag because if you can charge $2 more by using your white glasses, why don't do it? Right. And that's really it. The vessel that you serve it in the glass, uh, whether it's a cocktail with alcohol or without, or whether it's a beer or whether it's wine, it's so really critical to transporting that guest, changing that guest experience, taking them someplace from where they are, and really providing that great cocktail experience. I want to touch also on, I can't have a conversation about food and beverage these days without the issue of sustainability. So I want to, I want to bring up the issue of sustainability. What does that mean to the psychology of the glass? Anything specific? It's really the same. If you are able to let your customers know that, let's say this is a recycled glass, mm-hmm. then you touch on the emotional base when you purchase. So it's a little bit of a spin-off, but within the same philosophy, where if you use recycled glass or half recycled glass or anything, there are a big segment of population who would like to have products served in some kind of recycled or zero waste or anything that's good for the environment. And it's getting bigger and bigger. No matter where you're in the world, that trend is, is getting bigger and bigger. And we even see that from larger producers that they are doing it themselves. For them, there is also a big cost savings. But if you're able to explain that to your customers, and you can do it in many ways, you can have on your menu on this specific cocktail, you can have a recycled logo on it, and then you can already add an extra dollar, even though it costs the same to produce. And that will impact the experience of the overall. So you're, when you're serving a cocktail in, in a recycled glass, you're adding an emotional part to the experience. So the overall experience of the cocktail have, have shifted towards more eco-friendly. And those consumers who are going for that will probably choose that than the non-sustainable yeah, I really love the storytelling that goes on around a cocktail menu. Uh, storytelling to me is, is is really what we all love a great story. And one of the stories that's that you start to see more and more of now is not only is the glassware recycled, but what you, in the zero waste, but you see the ingredients in the cocktail coming from the waste from the kitchens, and and those those things were previously thrown away are now being either reformulated, ground up, put in a blender, whatever to help flavor and enhance and elevate the cocktail experience as well. So I think that's really a great story to tell. Yeah, well, if you look within mixology, just to, to, to go on a different path for a sec, the whole sustainability is growing. We even see spirit producers producing gin in bulks, in cartons, instead of bottles, because there's an eco-friendly story to, to it that it's, it's cheaper for the environment, transportation, everything. So with the glass, you can use it to emphasize the emotional attachment. But in general, we see with tableware, glassware, mixologies, that the way of using your lime to full everything, the shelf, the juice, everything, and maybe even use that even more, is only growing. And I think actually during COVID, it even grew more because you want to keep, you want to make as much money out of that one lime as you, as, as you can. So I think the whole sustainability has grown within this 
pandemic that you want to use as much as you can from that one product. Yeah, see, one of the segments I want to bring you back for and, and, and do with you is that whole issue of writing your cocktail menu, that storytelling that needs to be done. And I, I think that's a great way to finish off the psychology of the glass 2.0. There's so much storytelling, so much transporting of the guests uh, that goes on in a uh, cocktail setting and beer and wine, same kind of thing. But we all are looking for a great story, I think. And uh, uh, I appreciate you joining us today. Anything else you want to add on the psychology of the glass 2.0? Anything we didn't touch on that you feel like uh, we, we want our listeners to know? I think more that everybody who's listening in should try think of how they feel when touch a glass, how they are, if you're a bar, how you present it, and try to play with the techniques that we've been going through this time or last time. Because I think actually a new world will open for them that there's not one right answer, but I believe that many producers, spirit producers, bars, will see the glass as a different element in their whole concept. For me, glass within a bar is one of the most important items you have, because that's the one that, that gets a drinking from, so you want the experience surrounding it. So I'm, I'm more hoping that your listeners will listen and try from their point of view, see, well, can I use this, or is it just, is, is he wrong? And I, I but like, try to, to see how the psychology actually can end with the end consumer how it actually is an interaction between the glass and the one who's who's drinking from it very good very good zandler redson hansen always a pleasure having you on board seat yourself thank you for joining us today we've got already named two different sessions that we're going to have you back for i look forward to those as well thank you and thanks to our listeners for joining us today see you soon see you soon that concludes this week's episode of Tabletop Journal's Seat Yourself podcast series. For more news, information, and insights on the hospitality tabletop industry, please be sure to check out www.tabletopjournal.com.